0: in Los Angeles. The hairband era has just begun. Cocaine is the drug du jour. And as the first girl hired at the iconic Hollywood Guitar Center, Taylor Van Arsdale had been given a front row seat to a parade of dreamers, druggies, and misfits flocking to the store. But in this world of, yes, sex, drugs, rock and roll is also the story of a young girl discovering herself making mistakes falling in and out of love and becoming a woman rife with celebrity encounters sexual tension emotional crises and laugh out loud moments cocaine to bane is an eye-opening view of the coming of age in a time and place like no other today i'm going to be interviewing taylor van arsdale she is a visual storyteller an author an artist and photographer she has a great sense of humor she has an intriguing story and this was just the beginning stay tuned
1: have you ever felt like giving up quitting throwing in the towel
0: One of my guests has done just that. No matter how difficult the circumstances that they were facing, they never gave up. And as a result, they have become successful as victors instead of victims. Everyone, I believe, has a story. And when we share our stories, we help others who have possibly endured something similar. Each one of my guests gives encouragement and tips, and each one is unique. I absolutely love to hear their stories. Many of them are authors or coaches, inspirational speakers, artists in different venues, and want each of us to gain insight and tips on how to become successful. So today with me, I have Taylor Van Arsdale. Hi, Taylor.
2: Hi, Carol. Thanks so much for having me on. I, I absolutely love your show and I listen to your um, other podcasts and I'm really, really uh, honored to be here.
0: Well, thank you. That That's always um, so nice to hear because not everybody shares that. So I really appreciate that. Thanks a lot, Taylor. Okay, so let's start with what happened to you in the fourth grade when you wrote a sci-fi story?
2: Wow. Okay, so it's pretty interesting. Um, when I was a kid, you know, I was an only child. So, um, I had, I didn't have a whole lot of friends and I, um, I went to school and I was taller than most of the kids in my grade. So, you know, kids will find any reason to pick on somebody. So I was called gawk Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, tall one and like i mean they had these ridiculous things that they would call me but it got to the point where it was so bad that um you know i think in fourth grade i remember my teacher you know told my mother that i was having problems because all the girls were picking on me and um she ended up because they would they would like throw paper at me they would like you know tear off sheet you know paper and roll it up and then yeah, they would throw spitballs or whatever they're called, you know. So um, she moved my desk away from everybody else to in an, in an effort to kind of help me, right? So I was facing the wall, and she told my mother – I don't really remember this very much, but she told my mother that I took my desk and I turned it around to face everybody, like to basically say, <laughs> screw you, you know. So – I, during that time, of course, I was always writing and I wrote a story about me and my dog. I had a dog by the name of Gabby and um, Gabby was my best bud. And in the story, it was a sci-fi and we went into space and at I guess at some point in the story. So, you know, um, I, uh, myself and the dog, we basically died in space. Like we were out, we were lost in space and, you know, the world to turn black and, you know, the dog died and I died in space. Like, you know, I don't even know how the dog got in a space suit, quite quite frankly, but like, you know, we were out there, lost in space. So um, my teacher brought it to my mother and said, you know, I think your daughter has some problems. Like, she was worried that I was not, you know, um, psychologically all well, you know, but I mean, I think pretty much it was just because you know, kids were tormenting me so much, I just wanted to get off the planet, you know what I mean? And, you know, but I also had the foresight to know, like, in my story, like, we didn't have any food, and we ran out of oxygen. So, like, in fourth grade, I was already thinking about sci-fis, and, you know, what the problems would be in space, you know, so, um, but I always had a love of sci-fi. My dad and I used to watch all kinds of sci-fi movies, and, you know i i just remember that those movies having such an impact on my life as a writer so
0: and then what happened after that when um you i think i believe the teacher contacted your parents correct
2: yeah she contacted my parents my mother was like what's the story you wrote and and she's like are you okay like my mother was like i remember my mother talking to me going do we need to have a conversation? Are you all right, honey? And I was like, Yeah, I wrote a story. And I'm like, it, it was just so foreign to anybody in my family because, you know, my father was a machinist and my mother was a homemaker. You know, I mean, they didn't really have creative and, you know, aspirations. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think, you know, but my mother, I mean, my mother knew that I was a different kind of child because, like, she sent me to camp. And, um, you know, all the kids were playing on the playground. And the camp counselor was like, your daughter is picking flowers and trying to figure out what flowers are which and smelling all the flowers.
0: <laughs> like, really? Just, How interesting. Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness.
2: I was always like, I wanted to just like be with nature, mm-hmm. you know, And when I was a kid. I think I probably would have made a good scientist if I had been guided in that direction. But, you know.
0: So how did you go from that young girl writing a grade school essay to the check-in girl at the Sunset Boulevard Hollywood Guitar Center?
2: Well, I think, you know, there are a couple transitional periods in a person's life that like make a difference. And, you know, for me, uh, probably sixth grade, I met a girl by the name of Beth, and we became friends. And she also loves Star Trek and sci-fi stuff and you know so we had that sci-fi connection and she also was a tall girl like so there was finally somebody that looked like me tall interested in the same things you know so i finally had this like buddy and we were on the playground and i was a very i wouldn't say timid isn't the right word but i was very um a like a pacifist you know not really wanting to ever mm-hmm. fight back physically and These same girls from, you know, grade school were out on the playground now at sixth grade and they were making fun of me. And Beth went over and beat the crap out of them. So, I mean, (laughs) it it, it was like, wow, like, okay, this is okay. Somebody, you know, came to my defense and she had brothers and she knew how to fight. Like she knew, um, I mean, she didn't even beat this girl up really. She basically, the girl came at her and she did something with her leg and t- turned the girl around so she fell on the ground. It was like a, um, like some kind of jujitsu or, you know, some ah. kind of move that she used. But her brothers have taught her, you know. And um, so I think that, that made me feel like, you know what, uh, I'm going to be okay. Like, I don't know how to explain it, but I, I felt like. That was really what I needed. I needed like somebody to just step in for me so I could see that it was okay to do that you know and then uh, after that um, the other uh factor that came into play was my mother took me out of public school because our public school i 'm from New York, so we had a I was in a really rough public school. We had a lot of um, gang activity and stuff, and you know there's a lot of drugs and such and My mother's like, didn't want me that. So she put me into a private school. And I really thrived at that private school. I made a lot of great friends. It was all girls. It was a really nice place. I mean, I hated it at first, but, you know, um, I came to absolutely love it. And um, from there, um, you know, I think that gave me the confidence to go out and do my own thing. And then I I went to Arizona State for a while. To study writing, and that's where I kind of got involved in um, a little bit involved in drugs, and then from there I kind of just went to California. My mother, my mother and father wouldn't let me go to California on my own first. They thought it was a crazy place, and um, so I ended up going to Arizona for a couple of years first, and then I moved to California. And when I moved to California, it was like rock and roll. I mean, it was like the beginning of that hairband era. So, um, you know, and I've always, I know this is going to sound really super weird, but I've always had uh, this ability to know where I was going to be working just by looking at the building. I mean, it's happened to me (laughs) multiple times. It happened to me when I got a job at a production company called Barry and Enright. It happened to me at HBO. I knew I, I saw the building and I knew I was going to be working there and it happened to me at guitar center and guitar center. Uh, we were just driving by sunset. I actually took a wrong turn um, to get to the sunset strip, which I was going to every night to go to the rainbow and the Roxy and hang out all, all these clubs. And I took a wrong turn cause I had been living in Sierra Madre and I ended up going past the Sunset Strip, past the Guitar Center to get to the Sunset Strip. Um, And I saw the building and I was like, it just said Guitar Center on it. It was this big gray building with just this huge Guitar Center sign. And I I thought, you know, I didn't know it was where they sold guitar. I didn't even know what it was, you know, but I thought "I I need to work there. I literally need to work there. So what's really funny is my girlfriend and I, my roommate, Uh, we went out to this club to go dancing and meet guys, and uh, we met these two guys, and it was the Coconut Teaser, which is no more on the edge of the Sunset Strip over by Laurel Canyon. And we literally like, these guys asked us to dance, and they were kind of cute, so we were dancing with them, yada, yada, and I asked the one guy where he worked, and he said, Guitar Center, and I said, oh, I'm going to work there. And like, he was just (laughs) like, what uh okay like they thought we were crazy i'm sure and he said well if you want a job there i'm the manager so come on down and i'll get you a job and i said oh can i come tomorrow and he goes no come in on monday uh you know whatever so like the weekend passed and monday i you know went in for my job interview wearing my fishnet tights and high <laughs> sky high boots and a bustier and a, you know like i mean like, why wouldn't you wear that for a job interview? <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, um, but it turned out also, it turned out also that someone else that I knew, I mean, am I? can I talk about this? I don't know if I can talk about this on the show. But so the Coke dealer that I was, sometime dealer that I was getting Coke from in the uh, 80s happened to know, uh, the manager at Guitar Center, and he told me his name, and I said, no, that's not the name of the guy that I met. And he goes, oh, well, whatever. Um, if you go in there, ask for James, he's he's the manager. So but that wasn't the name of the guy, the two guys that we met. It was like yeah. Steve and Sean or something. So I went in there on Monday, and I asked for the manager, and this guy, James, came down, and I said, oh, you're the manager. And I saw Steve and Sean at the store they were definitely at the store and I kind of waved to them and they looked at me like I was you know uh, from Mars you know and um you know it turned out of course they weren't managers they were like these little guys at work at the uh the uh accessory booth you know They they were like peons in the store right so so James said oh you want a job and I said yeah I uh, went upstairs and, you know, sitting in his office. And, of course, back then everybody smoked cigarettes. So he's smoking a cigarette in the office and I'm smoking a cigarette. And I'm there, you know, like I said, in my bustier and my fishnets. And I said, oh, we um, we have a friend in common. And, he, and, he, and I told him the guy's name. And he goes, oh, is he still selling that terrible Coke? <laughs> oh, no. Weirdest thing ever, you know. I mean, like you're on a job interview and the guy's asking you about your Coke dealer. And like, I don't know, it was so strange. And anyway, um, I ended up getting the job because they needed somebody. He said they had been, he said it was just timing, you know, everything's always timing, right? So um, they needed somebody, they wanted a pretty girl to work at the check-in area. They didn't have anyone monitoring who was coming in and out of the store. So I was literally, I mean, they They jerry-rigged this, like, table, a card table, and, you know, there wasn't even anything there. And um, my first day at the store, uh, you know, they were like, you answer the phone, here's how you answer it. Uh, If if anyone calls for me, tell them I'm not here. I mean, like, it was this (laughs) insane place, Carol. I mean, really, just everybody was doing coke back then. Everybody was, you know, doing something, and, like, anyway that first day, there was a guy that walked out of the store, and he was supposed to show me his receipt. And of course, I asked for it. And he, he didn't show it to me. And he ran out with this like, beautiful guitar. And I, I ran after him, and I jumped on his back. Literally oh, my goodness. Back. You know, they all came out, and they're like, she, she it was like a $5,000 guitar. And, you know, I saved it from getting stolen. And they were like you've got the job and that's pretty much how my life has been ever since <laughs> like
0: oh my word that's an incredible story thank you for sharing that so nice. how, how long did you stay there
2: I was there a year I was pretty much there for a year I I, I could have stayed on uh, but I was you know you have to also know that like I wasn't um desperate for work so to speak like um my family background, you know, we were wealthy at the time, and um, you know, I I really just wanted a part time gig because it was fun. Everything was just sort of fun, you know. So um, I was there part time, and they wanted me to go on full time, and I didn't want to. And they were changing over, so I you know I left basically because I was like, no, this is not fun anymore, you know. And a lot of the people that I knew we're leaving and the corporate structure of the Uh place was totally changing so you know yeah about a year first girl there
0: interesting now let's fast forward a little bit sure and as like many of us who especially those who are guests on this show have a point in their life when they felt hopeless or helpless and you shared with me uh something about I'm not sure what point in your life this happened, so share that, but it was, had to do with your husband. So let's fast forward to that. So
2: so it's interesting. So I met him, I met him at the tail end of my um, journey at Guitar Center, actually, and um, you know, he was a musician uh, by day, but he was also, uh, by night, sorry, but by day, he was a developmental engineer at Hughes Aircraft, so he was a really smart guy, and he was a really good person in a lot of ways. He was so unlike me in so many ways. Like he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't do drugs. Um, While I was with him, you know, I stopped smoking, I stopped, you know, I stopped doing coke like after the after Guitar Center. So I was like, that was like, maybe about a year in my life. And then, um, you know, I feel like I I just became a better person. I, you know, I started working at HBO. I, you know, had a stable job. You know, I was thinking about going back to school. And then, you know, we were together probably about 10 years altogether. But I think, you know, we were only married for four years. And then he committed suicide. So that was really a very devastating time for me because it was like everything I had known and thought was, you know, going to be in my life. I mean, we had just bought a condo uh, in a beautiful neighborhood. Like, it was like everything was kind of going really well, you know, and then I even had my own band at the time. And, oh, you know, it turns out he was a very depressed person. In fact, it's funny because, you know, when people came to his memorial service, you know, they said, oh, well, we always knew he was very depressed. And I never saw it. You know, I never, really? I guess- yeah, because, you know, when he was with me, he wasn't depressed, you know, but I don't know. I, I guess he had apparently his brother had told me that he had tried to commit suicide when he was in high school. So that I guess that always lingered there. But it's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, how you know how it is when you're in something, you don't see it. You know what I mean? Like, right. when, when you know, so these were people that he either worked with or had experiences with that knew him in a different way than me. And you know told me later but maybe he should have been on medicine or something but like they didn't really back then mm-hmm. they didn't really have that you know so that was a really challenging time HBO was awesome they gave me like I think I took think three months off of work you know on um, paid leave and and that was really helpful but then when I got back to work uh, it was weird because I just don't even remember that year like I I literally, like, uh, it's funny, I was actually looking at my diary from a friend of mine who was helping me after he passed away, and, you know, I had some movie ticket stubs, and I was like, I don't even remember going and seeing these movies, like, you don't, mm. like, you're just checked out. I, I do remember going to work every day, and I would drive to work, and then I'd pull in, I'd go upstairs, because, we you know, we were in a high-rise, and I'd sit and i'd type stuff at my desk and and then i'd go home and i don't remember like you're in a daze for so long you know and i think i think i finally you know i went to a therapist because hbo was like oh we'll pay for a therapist for you so i went to this therapist and i don't know anything about therapists right so I go into this therapist, and the therapist is a, quote, Freudian therapist. So I don't know if you know about different therapists. I didn't at the time, but Freudian therapists do not talk to you. They right. just they sit there and nod. And I literally went to her, you know, for quite some time, and I, hmm. I would tell tell my friends, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I I needed some guidance. I just finally got to the point where I was just like, I was done. I was a little irritated, but when I say irritated with her, you know, I mean with the right, process right. of that. Um, and I went to like, you know, a suicide therapy group, and that was distressing because, you know, these people there—they were like, they would tell you a story about, like, oh, you know, uh, my wife committed suicide, or my son committed suicide, and then they'd start telling you about themselves, and you'd be like, oh, well, if I lived with you, maybe I would. T- <laughs> <laughs> no. It was just brutal, and I'm like, I got to get the hell out of here, right? So I, I think at some point after a year, you, you just like go, okay, this is the way it is now. He is not here anymore. Now you have to yeah, you have to go on. I also had a lot of guilt. Um,
0: I was wondering about that.
2: I had a ton of guilt, and that manifested in a terrible way for me because what happened was I got involved with the guy about a year, I guess a year and a half later after he passed away. Who was a really bad person? I mean, really bad. He was like a he was like a grifter. I've never experienced anything like this in my life, and would never want to again. And he literally almost killed me. That man was so bad. He would do things like like he got my codes for my four hundred one k. He took all my money out. You know, oh like he would just do horrible stuff. Like I. I had nothing. By the time I I kicked him out, you know, eight years later, um, I and I found out he had cheated on me and done all these horrible things, and then took my money and, you know, I had literally had nothing, and I had to basically mm. do any kind of work. So I I took I took work. I think I had gotten a real estate license at that point. I can't remember. I did something because the writers' strike had happened, and I was afraid I wasn't gonna be able to write or something. So I I did that, and then I basically just took jobs in property management. I took all kinds of like little jobs here, jobs there, got the strength to get rid of him, get him out of my life. And that was a great thing. That was the best thing. And then I just continued on. I mean, you have to, you get to a point where you have to continue on. Now, my mother, my mother got sick during that time and with cancer, you know, and that was really hard. But I see now that like my husband's passing allowed me to be able to help my mother and take mm. care of my mom. Interesting. You know, you know, you ask how people survive these things and how they find the will to go on. So my mother was a great person because she never told me I couldn't do things. She never told me I wasn't good enough. She always told me I was the best and, you know, you're amazingly talented and you can do this and you can do whatever you want and you can be whatever you want. And she always encouraged me, and always made me feel good you know and that having that grounding was so helpful you know because I, I don't think I could have gotten through it if I had been told all along I was no good I mean you need that in your life I think if people need that you know to hear that I always feel bad when I hear about kids who their parents right. didn't love them you know or, or treat them well
0: no they have no idea what the damage they're actually doing and that that's the saddest part, I think.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's interesting. So we have—I um, have a great fiance now, by the way. He's amazing. I love him to pieces, and somebody I've known um, most of my life, actually, which is great. But we took in a stray cat that was just the nastiest thing you'd ever—you know—I <laughs> mean, it's just so mean and obnoxious, and it used to try and scratch me all the time, and you know, I can't remember. Uh, you know it was about probably eight years ago we took this cat in now the cat's still not completely you know I don't trust the cat completely but I will say this at one point I did make a change in how I was treating the cat and I just Mm -hmm. said I took I looked at the cat and I said you are no longer going to be called like we were calling it like trouble or something I said your name is no more your name is trouble no more your name now is Mr. Snuggle Puss (laughs) and And, like, all of a sudden, like, we started treating the cat, and I started calling the cat by a nice name, and I started, like, saying, you're a good boy. You're going to be a good boy. I changed the name of the cat to Mr. Snugglepuss. I started treating the cat like he was little Snugglepuss, and that cat has come around and has become such a little love muffin. And, you know, that cat that, you know, would try to claw you and whatever, now just, dutifully gets in his little cat carrier to go get his bath and his you know his uh his flea medicine and you know he sits outside he still likes to be outside he's still sort of a hobo cat in a lot of ways like he still likes the outdoors so he sits in the backyard but he's like he's a really good boy you know and I think nobody ever told him he was a good boy you know what I mean so it's like I think people can change and they can come around but I think it takes a lot of love you know to get there so
0: tell us about your book
2: but I wrote it because you know originally I was going to write it about it was going to be about the story of all the different people at guitar center it was going to be more like a um, compendium of stories but it kind of took a life of its own when I realized like it really should be about a year in my life there that's basically what it is it's a year in my life at the store there's um a sub story about my roommate and her um eventual, um, her breakdown, her mental breakdown that she had. And, you know, it was a very odd time. I mean, we're talking 1985. You know, it's like Jay McInerney wrote um, Bright Lights, Big City, and that was about New York. And Brett Easton Ellis wrote, um, you know, Less Than Zero. But this is Like and that's transgressive, what they call transgressive fiction. So this is a feminine perspective on transgressive fiction. So it's a really interesting look at that time period. In fact, uh, Penelope Spheris read parts of the book and told me it was the most accurate depiction of the 80s she's ever read. Oh
0: my goodness. So what is is the purpose of the book and
2: who should read it? Oh, well, uh, anybody who's interested in the rock and roll era of the 80s on the Sunset Strip should read it. Anybody who wants to read a young female coming of age should read it. Historically, it's a very interesting book, too, because it's got a lot of places um, that are depicted in it um, that are no longer there. And is it so written as a story? It, it is a story, yeah. It's written as a – it's what they call a creative narrative fiction. Okay. So it's, um, it's my – it's a first-person um, perspective basically. Okay. Yeah.
0: And, and you also have writing services. Can you expound on that please?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I taught screenwriting at Loyola Marymount University after I graduated there Magna cum Loud. And I also consulted for <clears throat> HBO as a development uh, person there and also at NBC Un- Universal, coaching uh, writers and developing content. Uh, the writers that I've worked with include writers of Two Broke Girls, Burn Notice, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, I worked on, uh, at HBO, I worked on the Golden Globe uh, winner introducing introducing Dorothy Dandridge and um, uh, Don King Only in America. Um, so I've actually helped people get their scripts in great shape. I've helped people with their books Um, copywriting and branding I mean anything about that um, I do and that's all on my website uh, taylorvanarsdale.com
0: yes that that'll be in your show notes as well so if anybody wants now tell me specifically what services you offer
2: I do writing services for screenwriters and for novelists so we have all kinds of script development services and um, you know reading and consulting editorial services you know, it really runs the gamut. It's all on the website, uh, which is taylorvanarsdale.com. dot com. Perfect. So, novel to script adaptation, editing, ghostwriting, um, marketing, and ad copy—we do it all. I do it all. I everything.
0: Say. Wow, yeah.
2: that's
0: that's incredible. Did you screenwrite a movie that was produced?
2: I did. I was asked by a friend of mine to take a look at. A uh, cousin was at this school. Part of their assignment for class was to hire a writer and actually produce a short film. That was part of their their thing. She contacted me and said, Would you wanna do this? And I said, Sure, but I need a contract. Like I don't mind I don't mind doing work if it's like on spec or whatever or free, but I need to like know that certain things are going to be adhered to. They were young kids, and I just wanted to make sure, you know, since they never really attempted anything like this, that they knew what they were doing. One of my uh, elements of the contract was that I had to have all of my dialogue had to be read exactly as written. There was not to be any improvisation in the script. And they agreed to that, which is good because, you know, a lot of times people take the writer's work and they just change it right so that was one thing and the other was that I would be a producer on the project and they agreed to that too so what happened was they they shot this I wrote it I interviewed the 3 of these kids who needed to be a part of it they were all actors at Pace University so then I wrote the script I interviewed them and the 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 parameters were it has to be about them like they can't play like an older person or a wizard or something it has to be like of them as they are. So I interviewed them, got a sense of who they were as a person. And then I wrote this short film based on that. And it's like, it's a, it's a quirky kind of dark comedy. Um, we have it out now, um, in festivals. Like it, it actually, what happened was after they shot it, they didn't know what to do with it from there. So they had somebody that was supposed to be editing it and they never could get the guy to edit it. So I called one of my friends from HBO and said, hey, do you want to get involved in this? And he was like, let me see. And he liked it. And he ended up, you know, fixing it. It came out really, really well. And he he became a producer. And then I brought in some other people to finish it. My um, fiance, Bill Hemp, did the music for it. And we also have a guy named Dave Peixot who did a song for it. Um, it was really just turned out to be a Uh, love effort basically and then you know I told the kids that I would start submitting it to festivals so it's out on the festival circuit I have a trailer of the movie up right now on this site it's called midtownmixup.com
0: I watched that yes
2: oh thanks but unfortunately nobody can see the actual finished film yet because uh it is like as I said in submission for festivals and they have a requirement that you don't no one can see it until they pass on it. So or pass or, you know, accept it. And then once it's accepted, then you can put it out there. So that's where we're at with that. But on a more even exciting note, if I can share this real quick. So sure. a sci fi that I wrote called The Rift, it's kind of like a Stephen King meets uh, Michael Crichton. And it's a meta, <laughs> it's a sci fi medical thriller. And it's a very kind of high concept premise. Well, we actually have an A list talent attached to that right now and we're getting ready to um you know go out and get some more cast involved we have some producers involved but that is what I've been working on right now and that's been pretty exciting so um no
0: kidding that sounds great and what what's the um date for that hopefully launch date well
2: um I can I can tell you more about it probably in a couple weeks I can tell you that I can tell you right now we have uh, one of the guys from Reservoir Dogs is attached. His name is Michael Sotile. Um I've got this guy, John Stalza, who's an actor as their lead role of Dinner. Um, Bill Hemp's going to be doing the music for it. Um, we've got uh, some amazing, amazing DP. David Kimmelman is on it. Paul Matthew Gordon's doing the editing. I've got uh, Two Sisters Media producing with me, really mm-hmm. taking a... A life of its own.
0: Now, is there any message that you want to share with the audience? And when I say message, something about a word of encouragement or anything that maybe comes to mind that you would like to share?
2: I really think things happen for a reason, and that you meet people in your life at a time when you need to meet them. And, you know, with respect to my husband's suicide, when I was in high school, there was a girl that I met um, in my, in my I think it was my junior year or my sophomore year of the girls' school. And she always had this, like, chip on her shoulder, and it was really awful. And, like, I didn't understand why she was so angry. Her sister apparently had committed suicide, and she had this quote. I know this sounds so corny, but she had this quote from a song, and it was, in every moment there's a reason to carry on. And I can't even remember the song, I think it's, I can't remember what the name of the song is, but um, that message to me is really important because it is like time and how we respond to time and things that happen in our life. We have to know that it's transitory and it's not going to be like that forever. So, you know, your life can change on a dime, literally could be really great or could be really bad, but something's going to happen. If it's really bad, something good will come shortly after so that's what I would say just try to remember that
0: I don't think you could have said anything more perfect
2: that that
0: sums up not only your life but my goodness that really gives a word of encouragement to listeners because as people are listening to your story they're regarding it of course as a story and they're they're listening to the woman now share you know her crazy past and what she has become let alone going through trauma extreme trauma and coming out on top and what you are doing to give back these are all things that make taylor who she is but more importantly the message ran through the podcast and now in the final words i think that is a beautiful summary and i thank you so much taylor for being on
2: Never oh, thank ever you thank give you. Up hope Thank you for having me, Carol. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening to Never, Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of 5 stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.